Cue the violins. Once a week, two middle-aged Jews meet at the intersection of fascinating news and personal angst. It's old media meets even older media, with reveals Phil Bronstein and Dave Pell of Next Draft. This is What Hurts, worrying about news since 2015. Well, welcome back to a, another episode of What Hurts, our first episode of 2016. I'm Dave Pell from Next Draft, and I'm here with Phil Bronstein from Reveal Studios and the Center for Investigative Reporting. And uh, we're going to try something a little new this week. Usually we have a little gamification, a little small talk at the beginning. This week we're going to jump right in and go right to the issue. And the, right to the small talk in the middle. Right. We're going we're gonna to keep it light this week and talk about the drug war, specifically uh, this week's big news that Sean Penn got a scoop of some sort for Rolling Stone where he went with uh, a series of burners or th- cell phones you could throw away. and You know what? You should just – you don't have it there, I'm sure. But you should just read the opening paragraph of Sean's story and that that will tell you everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah. Well, that I, – I do think we'll get to that. It's actually – I think the first – one thing that the first paragraph has that's unique about it is that it's, it's about 30 paragraphs long. But uh, I just want to get started here. and We're, so what we're, we're investigative we're, reporters. We understand length. Yes, that's true. Uh, but that's a different topic. And girth. So let's talk. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's 216. We're back. 2016. <laughs> back with fire. All right. So we want to talk. I want to talk about this issue of Sean Penn getting the story about El Chapo. I happen to be completely obsessed with this story all stories related to the war on drugs, and we can get to that. I'm also very interested in what is journalism, and that topic really came up this week. It seemed almost the second that Sean Penn's story went live for Rolling Stone, in which he had an interview and spent seven hours with one of the world's most notorious uh, drug cartel leaders and uh, a guy who had escaped from prison six months earlier and was on the run and yet somehow made time for Sean Penn and a, an actress that made the connection. And I want to get your take, first of all, and you bring a very interesting perspective to this conversation because you Interesting were, is never a good word. Uh, you were the editor last time Sean Penn had a big story. First time. The first time? First time. Oh, he's done some since then also? I think he did some stuff from Haiti for the nation. So you're even more responsible than I originally <laughs> thought. You, you broke, we're, we're broke. Now we're, we're already getting into one of the categories of what hurts Personally. Broke him into the business. So I want to get your take. There's been a bunch of debate this week about is this journalism? Is it okay that he did the interview? All right, let, me, let, me, let me stop you right there. Okay. That's better. Now, let me ask you a question. So El Chapo is a mysterious, non-English speaking, multi-billionaire Mexican, the biggest drug dealer on the face of the earth by his own admission, right? Si es verdad. Si es la verdad. So suddenly Sean goes and talks to him, and we can characterize the, the interview at, at any point later. And what do we discover? We discover something fundamental, that we, you and I, have something in common with this guy who we thought we would have never have anything in common with in our entire lives, who was so opposite us that he's like a black hole. And what did we discover? We love celebrities. He loves celebrities. We love celebrities. So something you found out right there, it humanizes the guy, even though, you know, he's been responsible for, what, 100,000 deaths, however many deaths, including a bunch of journalists. He also has absolutely no moving game and no text game. 
had no idea who Sean Penn was. And now that they've released his texts, he is not too impressive in the communications arena either. But well, you don't right. have to be. You know, when you got like 80 armed guys standing around you at all times with their guns cocked and the safety off, you can say whatever you want in whatever language or mauled language you want. I feel like you're coming up with a pretty interesting marketing strategy for what hurts. (laughs) But let's get back to the past when you unleashed the renowned journalist who is Sean Penn on the world. You were the editor of The Chronicle. The story was about Iran, basically Sean Penn's experiences in Iran, and tell me some of the your thinking behind having him do it, how it happened, and All right, is don't it ask journalism? Me more than one question at a time, because I will forget the subsequent questions. All right, so I've what, already forgotten your first question. Okay, what the hell have you done? Okay, what have I done? Oh my God, that's a long list. Uh, Sean actually in two thousand and I think it was three. Uh, came to me with a story he'd already done about visiting Iraq. And this was at a time when both Iraq and Iran were, you know, not that accessible, not that open, particularly Iran. So we, after some, you know, difficult editing, difficult for him, difficult for us, we ran, I think, a two-part series on, on Iraq. We split the story in two. It turns out he was interested in going to Iran. This was, I think, 2000, early 2004, late 2003. And so he and I had a conversation about it. And we talked about his going to Iran and what it could be in terms of writing for the Chronicle. And we didn't have a discussion, is he a journalist, is he not a journalist? Because first of all, that's an endless debate that's, you know, never going to get fully resolved. Like are Diane Feinstein's bloggers in pajamas, as she put it, are they journalists, are bloggers journalists? You know, you don't require a license, you don't require formal training. Anybody can call themselves a journalist. So I don't I sort of put that aside. My interest in sending him to Iran was he had, as a great actor, I think we'd mostly agree, and a good director, maybe a great director, had a particular eye for detail and an eye for personality and drama and action that I wanted him to apply to this country that very few people had, Westerners had seen or knew what was going on in. And he would go there, and what I said to him from the very first conversation we had is, and we don't want your politics in the story. Not because we don't care, although we may not, but because everybody knows what your politics are. And you have all these venues to, to express those politics f- from the Academy Awards on down. You know, so we don't need that. Well, he went. He had a really interesting trip. He interviewed uh, Khomeini's grandson, he interviewed Rafsanjani. This was right around the time of the election, I think 2004 in Iran. So he And he got access to a, a women's a demonstration in Iran, down to, in the streets of, of Tehran. So he actually had a pretty keen eye about all these things and gave us some sense of what they were. Now, we had some pretty um, interesting sessions about the editing process. And I would say they were filled in many ways with blood and betrayal. I mean, not literally necessarily in either case, but it was sort of like that. And we had one session in the back room of Tosca's bar, you know, nose to nose, almost came to blows, but we managed to get back on track and the stories ran and a lot of the stuff that he wanted to put in there didn't didn't get in because it was political in nature. So that was the sort of, that's the story of us sending him to Iran and he didn't get paid. So I buy the uh, almost wholesale dismissal of the idea of whether he is a journalist or not. 
when it comes to him going to Iran and basically what those stories turned out were his his reflections on his own experiences. It's it's very, what he what he was seeing. What he was seeing, right? And, and if you could, if you if you were willing to believe that he was accurately reporting what he was seeing, then that's what we were looking for. Right. It was as soon as he starts talking, you know, and it's not like there was no opinion in there. I mean, his opinion is it's easily identifiable as opinion. We're sending Sean Penn to Iran. We're not sending. You know, a journalist. Right. We're so, sending an actor. So people get what it was. So let's let's fast forward to uh, last week when his story comes out. He, in October, uh, he went and somehow made connections, partly through uh, a famous Mexican act- actress, to have a sit down meeting with uh, Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo. And as you've described earlier, you know. Really bad guy, horrible guy. We like to romanticize uh, figures. I think in the drug war, whether it's watching Narcos on oh, Netflix, he's listening. right? I I'm, understood. You know, when Sean said right. he was gracious or whatever he said. Yeah, no, you're right. He, he, you, Phil did not nod in agreement when I just said that he's a terrible guy. But he does. This is a guy who we're talking about. You know, the most violent. Places on earth right here, entire swaths of countryside that have been where, where taken over do, and do destroyed. Right. And journalists get killed and people get tortured regularly, women and children. People get beheaded. We, If we covered the war on drugs like we cover the war on terror, people would, I think, be totally shocked and up in arms at what we've done to an entire country, really. So with that in mind— uh, and I agree with some of the things politically that Sean Penn feels about this. Not all of it, but I do agree that we're implicated, that the government is implicated in what's going on there, and that none of our hands are clean in this because we're the buyers of the product that he's selling. But let's put that, all that on the table. Is Sean Penn going to sit down for seven hours with El Chapo different than what he did when you sent him to Iran. Again, in this article in Rolling Stone, it's very clear, right? We can joke about the quality of the writing. The first 30 paragraphs are basically about Sean Penn. They barely even mention El Chapo. And his initial reactions to meeting El Chapo, where he says he seems like, you know, a reasonably nice guy who has, you know, loves his kids and they love him. You know what I mean? All that stuff. So the cards are on the table. There's nobody is reading that and thinking, wow, this guy is really being totally unbiased, and here's a guy who really has deep knowledge of the crimes of Joaquin Guzman. It's very clear right. what it is. He's expressing his view right. at that moment. Right. As all actors say, they try and do, or most right. actors, live in the moment, be in the moment, all that stuff. That's what he was doing. So I mean, let's assume a lot of the rage about it, because there was almost instant people making fun of it and rage. Well, and how, you it, know, I mean, of course, it's but, a really but, easy it, target. But it's... if. This was just some random individual or a blogger or uh, somebody who wrote for uh, BuzzFeed or Vice that had got this interview. They wouldn't have gotten it. Um, yeah, they probably wouldn't have gotten it because this was— Vice, uh, Vice would have had a guy like five miles away whispering over his shoulder where you could see the evidence of sleeve, full-sleeve tattoo with gunshots going on in the background, perhaps fired by his producer. That's what Vice would have yeah. gotten. Even that would scare me, so all of my cards <laughs> on the table. But so is this different and is it okay? I'm I'm bothered by it. I was bothered by this article when what it got bothered, posted. What bothered but you? that's what I'm not sure about. I'm not sure what bothered me about it because it was very clear that it was not straightforward journalism. This was right. On, the other, was? on the other hand, this is a, a guy who is really bad and a a, a violent situation that's really bad, and that did not come across in the article either. Right, this, it, it served to romanticize the war on drugs, much like Narcos does, where it just seems like Escobar is this sort of bubbling, okay, so here goofy, you're, nice guy. Here you're now you're sort of hitting at the meat of this issue. This was a cultural event. 
right? It wasn't, I mean, it was in the news, so it was newsworthy. One could say it was a news event. There's still debate, I think, up to today as to whether they were tracking him or not tracking him. That is Sean Penn. Whether they were ready to attack the House when they were there but didn't because Sean was there. Whether any of that's true. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe what governments say. That's why I'm a journalist. So I don't know what, what the reality is. What I do know is that this was a cultural event. This is a movie and a movie and a movie and a movie. You got a movie star, a female movie star who's played gangsters, drug gangsters, wanting to apparently have some kind of relationship with a real drug gangster. You've got a drug gangster who may or may not, depending on which day you're reading the stories from Mexico, want to be at least portrayed in the movies, if not be a movie star himself. You know, I can see a reality show with El Chapo, you know, like here is my tunnel <laughs> right below my toilet. So I have not been this confused about the difference between reality and fantasy since Christiane Amanpour played herself on Iron Man 2. You know, I, those things confuse the crap out of me. I don't understand. I see Wolf Blitzer in a movie. I'm going like, what is going on here? I realize this is stupid and naive. It's all about personalities, you know, one way or the other. But I think if you were – I think you would need an army of intellectual property lawyers to sort out all the strand, possible strands of future movies of the week and series and reality shows that came out of this thing. It was a cultural event in that sense. It was kind of like, as I said, movie upon movie upon movie. So if it's not OK to be angry with either Rolling Stone or Sean Penn from this – perspective of, hey, is this really journalism? Is it not journalism? I don't think anybody was positioning it as journalism. If you thought it was journalism, it does not take you more than about the length of a tweet, 140 characters, you realize this is not journalism. But if you're 25 years old or 20 years old or thir maybe even 30 years old, you may not care whether it's journalism no. or not. That may be a conversation that you don't even want to have. Right. So you're not interested in it. Right. It's it, like, it, oh, it is what it is. Yeah, and I think that's a fair place to leave it, that it is what it is. It's very clear what it is, that's for sure. They make no effort to hide what it is. Like you say, it was a cultural event. On the other hand, what about, let's say you uh, are not a famous person and you somehow had the ability to get this meeting and as part of the meeting, you were going to sit down and talk to El Chapo and shake his hand and do a couple of photos with him. It's like saying, assuming you could fly. Right. But is is that OK? Is it OK to be angry with Sean Penn that he's, I think, with a certain amount of naivete, from my perspective, sort of shaking this guy's hand and giving this guy an open forum to speak and treating him as something other than a monster, which anybody who knows the situation in Mexico and in the drug war knows that that's not the case. We're implicated in it. We are the ones buying the drugs. We are the well, ones— Well, there's a continuum here, Dave, and that is, you know, if you're—I've sat across from really bloodthirsty characters. I, we've talked about it before on this show, in El Salvador in particular. And, you know, the question came up. This is a person responsible for the deaths of lots of innocent people. Brutal, ugly, nasty, bloodthirsty— so why wouldn't you reach across the table and strangle him? Or why, at a minimum, would you give this person the respect and dignity of actually sitting across the table and doing an interview? You're a journalist. I mean, I don't think any decent journalist, I don't think even any great journalists, and, and there are a few of those around, 
would agree that we should that they should not, if given the opportunity, have an interview with bad people. It happens all the time. Right. But all the time. My question is slightly different. I, I don't doubt that if you are a journalist, quote unquote, you have to do that interview. Right. We Like you say, we do that all the time. We sit with these guys. And Sean Penn has to go and talk to people. I mean, he's talked to Noriega. I mean, he's talked to uh, Hugo Chavez. He's talked to the Castro brothers. He's, you know, this is what he does. He's rode a boat and in uh, New Orleans. But, I mean, but is it different if you're not a journalist, which we agree Sean Penn is, and, and you're a private citizen? Is there a difference if you're uh, meeting with a guy like El Chapo? Yeah, or you're going to get exa- exactly what happened. You're going to get something different than what you would get if a real journalist were doing an interview. But there's no ethical issue about you sitting down and meeting with the guy at all if you're not a journalist. What's the ethical issue? I don't know, that he's a scumbag and you're not a real journalist and so it sounds like you're making a match here. Well, do you have a, a, a responsibility to notify the authorities? Hey, I just got uh, permission to meet El Chapo. Follow me. Well, I think he actually, Penn actually established something really important. If in fact the government of Mexico or the United States wasn't tracking him or the woman or anybody in their party, and if in fact they didn't know he was there, what he established, which is sort of significant is that somebody like Sean Penn can get in with the help of some actress who's publicly expressed great admiration and and affection for El Chapo, can get in to see El Chapo, the most wanted man, the most hunted man on earth at that moment, and the authorities couldn't. Now, again, we don't know what the facts are. We may never know what the facts are, but that alone tells me, you know, tells me something that I want to know, which is... Neither government can capture this guy, but you know Sean Penn can find him. Does it bother you at all that uh, by you're all just, you just look at you? No, you really are looking for me. No, I'm not to looking. Be ashamed. No, I'm here's not. What I, here's no, what, I'm, I'm really asking about this because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I was angry when I first started the article go up, and as I read the article, it became clear to me this is not journalism. What am I angry about? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I am thoroughly obsessed with the drug where I think it's wildly miscovered by the American press. And uh, I'm trying to figure out— Sean Penn was going to go and fix that. No, no, I didn't. I'm not sure why seeing those pictures of him shaking his hand really bothered me, but it does. And I'm not sure why. I'm not necessarily— Maybe uh, it was the fact that they had El Chapo shirts on sale for like five minutes later. Yeah, that's also sad. And those were some bad shirts. Yeah, well, that's the general broad issue of the romanticization. That's probably not a word one we should use on a podcast— of the war on drugs. But I do want to mention two pieces of content that uh, I think can be interesting to people if they are interested in this topic. One, I've both experienced them both recently. One is a book called The Cartel, and it's a sort of, I guess, historical fiction, you'd call it. it. It is a novel, but it's based in reality. And it's by a guy named Don Winslow, who did about six years of uh, investigation in Mexico. Yeah, he's, he was, and, he's been on a lot of TV shows. Yeah, lately. right. Yeah. He, he does like to get on the TV shows. I have slightly mixed feelings about that. But uh, the book Jeez. was really interesting. Yeah, I'm hard on all of them. You're, I'm hard you're on, an angry guy. I am. And the other thing was— You should be a journalist. Uh, I can't. <laughs> that ruins my chance of meeting El Chapo. <laughs> but uh, the other th- thing uh, was a documentary that just got nominated for an Oscar uh, in the documentary category, and that's called Cartel Land. It actually just takes a very small 
a very tiny, really, glimpse at the war on drugs and how it affects one small city. But it's really both of those things together are incredibly informative. One is a two-hour movie uh, that, you know, I wouldn't have my kids around when I watched it. And one is a, a really a long sort of the war and peace of the war on drugs in a way. It's a really long book. But I found both uh, riveting and really interesting. I want to end this segment by reading just one little exchange. Uh, and maybe this is why it frustrates me a little bit. One little exchange between um, – El Chapo and uh, Del Castillo, the woman who was regularly tweeting about him and then eventually began texting with him. She writes, I haven't slept much since I saw you. This is after their first meeting. I'm excited about our story. It's the truth. It's the only thing I think about. And El Chapo responds, I admit I'm more excited about you than the story, friend. And Del Castillo responds, I'm happy to hear it. You made me blush. And then she has a little emoticon. That's the story of news these days. It's all about, you know, personality and chemistry. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. What are you, what are you excited about? I, okay. Well, now I, we know – I mean, even there, we know something. No, we do know something about him. He has the ability to make people blush with no text game whatsoever. From a distance. Maybe that's what pisses me off, that I am what I think – an incredible tweeter. I'm great at social media. I, I put a lot of thought into my texts. And yet this chump with the bad shirt and the horrible mustache on the run, he's a fugitive, and he's still Dave, got more game in the social media world Dave, Dave, than I do. Dave, How frustrating is that? You, okay, I'm going to stop you right there. You just haven't killed enough people. You're right. Why don't you get a job, Spicoli? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need is some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. Thanks. Can I use your bathroom? Okay, so let's move on. We'll segue now from the world of Sean Penn interviewing El Chapo with, a, I think, a nice segue to my personal herd of the week, which has to do with the tooth fairy. Now, I should start by saying that I'm a firm believer in the tooth fairy. It would be too long a story to explain why, but I did as a child have definitive proof that the tooth fairy was real. So my my daughter is seven and she's uh, losing her teeth late like I did. So she's just lost her first couple teeth, okay? So she lost her tooth the other night, her second tooth. And the tooth fairy came and left her five bucks uh, and she had a little, actually a little pillow emoji that was under her main pillow that was removed from that spot and hung on the wall across from her. So she woke up in the morning and came running into my room. She was so excited. Daddy, daddy, the tooth fairy came. And I like excitedly jumped up, which takes me about 30, 40 seconds minimum, made my way to her bedroom, saw the emoji emoticon pillow on the wall, uh, saw her excitement, saw her take the five bucks and slide it into her piggy bank. Everything was so great. And the next day I was telling my wife, hey, you know, it's so cute that, you know, our daughter is so innocent and wonderful and she really enjoys these things like getting some money from the tooth fairy and she really thinks about it and fantasizes about it. And it's a really nice story. And so my wife says, Dave, you really might want to go into our bedroom right now. And I go into our bedroom and every single drawer is open and has been shuffled through. Half of my personal belongings are on the floor. My nightstand drawer has been completely emptied. And I immediately know, and I'm seconded by my wife, that my daughter, after experiencing this, uh, what I perceived as wholehearted buy-in of the Tooth Fairy, then went and checked every inch of my house to see where I might have hid the tooth. And the thing that hurts me about this is that— not that she wants to have an intellectual uh, expansion and 
try to test the theories and make sure things are real. Those are maybe she'll be a journalist. That seems like a good uh, set of traits to have. But she thinks I'm such a fucking idiot that I can't even properly hire a tooth. That she just thinks like she's going to go open up my uh, nightstand drawer and there's going to be like a collection of teeth. Maybe there's some from other kids in the neighborhood. Like I can't handle that. I l- Let me make this clear for the record in case she's listening. And if she is, that will double our listenership this week. Uh, <laughs> I did not put the money under the pillow or take the tooth. But if I had, you're only seven. Can you still have a slight bit of faith that I could have pulled it off a little bit better than – leaving the tooth out on the breakfast table or something like right, that. Well, so that, that, that's that, my hurt. That's a painful, it's painful. That's painful, especially since my nine-year-old lost one of his teeth and wanted both the money and the tooth. And I had to negotiate that. But the moral to your painful story, Dave, is, is that we know who bought into the fantasy. <laughs> it wasn't your daughter. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's the, the, I just want to make it clear that it's the fact that she thinks I'm an idiot that is the problem. I, I, I think we understand that. Okay, Even great. the idiots among us understand that. Okay. Great. I just want to make that clear. Okay. All right. That there were idiots? Every week I want to have one point to leave people with and that's it. My daughter, who's seven, is already aware that I'm an idiot and she is not too shy to share that. All right. Shoot. What's your hurt this week? Well, um, I have one that's in keeping with that, which is my nine-year-old son – you know, we sit in bed at night as he's going to sleep, supposedly, which he never does, and he ends up in our bed anyway. But we talk about whatever's on his mind. And the other night, he wanted to talk about the Haw- what he called the Hawkinson theory, meaning the Stephen Hawkins theory of black holes. And he starts to first he tells me he's reading a biography of Albert Einstein. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, okay. And he tells me Einstein is from the city of Ulm, which I think is true. And then he starts talking about these, this Hawkinson theory about a black hole that involves, you know, the, the rules of physics are that matter cannot disappear. It has to go somewhere. And so Hawkins, as he described it, Hawkins' th- thesis is that either the matter that we think gets sucked into a black hole and never comes out actually forms in some two dimensions on the, on the, uh, the entry point of the black hole or – that it comes flying out the other side in a white hole, and he's, I'm, he's telling me all this, in a white hole and into a parallel universe, which is why – explains why you never see it again. And I'm just listening to this and I'm going, mm-hmm, trying to be dad-like and yes, in my wisdom. And as soon as he fell asleep, I had to go and fact check him and he was right. And that was painful. I have another painful thing just in case. I went skiing with my family for a day and a half around New Year's. This already hurts. I hate skiing. I don't like people who ski. I don't like that weird kind of strange lumberjack walk that people walk in ski boots like they're actually 400 pounds of muscle. I don't see any people who aren't white up there. It's just a little, little weird. There are thousands of people skiing. I don't like waiting in lines. I don't like the clothes. I don't like anything about it. But I went. And I guess I'm not successfully explaining how much I can't tolerate. I lived in Canada of all places, although I played hockey. But I lived in Canada when I was a kid. And even then, I wouldn't go skiing because it was too socialized an activity. And I have never seen a more socialized activity than skiing. People sitting around the fire, drinking beer, doing shots. I mean, 
Normally you'd think it doesn't sound so bad, but it's because they're wearing all this weird stuff. And because I don't ski, and if I try to ski, I've tried it once or twice. I tried snowboarding, and I almost killed myself. And you see these people, some of them shaped like the Goodyear blimp, coming down, zooming down the hill. It's like, what is it about skiing that allows people to do it, to get into all the dress and the paraphernalia and the fancy stuff and the wait for the lines and the, all that stuff and still have this athletic ability when in, in real life they probably can't walk down the street. Can you explain that to me? Because otherwise it's just painful. For those listening at home, Phil just gave a absolutely perfect de definition of what it means to be a Jewish male in America. <laughs> Basically, if you translate— No, no, I'm telling you, it's a cuts across. I'm telling you— Except it, for, except it, for it, race. As, as far as I'm concerned, the, the words Baruch Atah Adonai <laughs> is the beginning of a complaint about how horrible it is to go skiing. And I'm really glad you brought the story up because tomorrow uh, my family and I are going skiing up at Tahoe. And— Two weeks ago at Heavenly Valley up in uh, Tahoe at one of the resorts, one of the chairlifts, it happened to be empty at the time, but one of the chairs on the chairlift broke off and fell into the snow about 60 feet down. And then the rest of the people on that chairlift had to wait for an hour and a half to be rescued, all thinking, I wonder if there's a chance my chair will fall since there's people in my chair. And so I thought that was a, a primer for going skiing that would really get me in the right mood, but you've taken it to a new level. And I you think know what? That sounds like a story that would actually make me almost want to go skiing, watching, you know, worrying about plummeting to my death. I can relate to that. I can't relate to this whole, like, button-up thing. Yeah. Like, it came from where? Scandinavia? I don't understand. Actually, if I was given the choice between either falling 60 feet on a chairlift— Bernie Sanders skis? No way. That's why I think you got to feel the burn. If I was given the choice of falling 60 feet from a chairlift into the snow or having to ski a black diamond run in front of my family, I think I'd probably take the drop. <laughs> so let's, we should take the drop right now. We should. Let's drop out of it. If I make it back from skiing, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, this is What Hurts with Dave Pell. That's me. If you want to hear more from me, you can check out my newsletter at nextdraft.com and Phil Bronstein. You can definitely check out his work if you sign up for the Reveal podcast, which is now weekly and nationwide and awesome. And our sound engineer, producer, and really victim of this because he has to listen to and it twice. Best friend. Also best friend is why, you know, I do pay him, dude, <laughs> is Jim Briggs. Uh, great guy. Also the engineer on the Reveal podcast. Get to know him, and we'll be back next week. See ya. You've been listening to What Hurts with Phil Bronstein of Reveal and Dave Pell of Next Draft. 